I love singing about Jesus to Jesus with you guys. Did you not enjoy that? That was fantastic. In, in Christ alone, I thought we were well above the clouds and just soaring into the presence of Jesus. It was wonderful. We're singing about Jesus because I'm about to talk about Jesus in this sermon, and I am pumped to do that. When I was um, 15, I began a relationship with the most beautiful girl you could ever imagine. And everything was right except one thing. She lived in Tullahoma, and I lived in Murfreesboro. That was the only thing that wasn't right. It's an hour-long drive if you're not from around here and you don't know about Murfreesboro and Tullahoma. It's an hour-long drive. The way that the relationship worked, two things. First of all, I had AOL Instant Messenger on my dial-up computer at home. And so we would do dial-up internet uh, instant messaging. The other way it worked is because her parents and mine were both really generous, and they would drive me some Fridays to go see her in Tullahoma, and her sometimes to come to see me in Murfreesboro. That's an arranged marriage. That's what that is. <laughs> and I don't care. I came out on top. It's fantastic. I, I won. But when I got to be 16 and I got my wheels, it was like, one of the best days of my life because then I knew, hey, I could take off after school and I can go and meet this girl in Shubville, Tennessee. And we would meet at what you might call a Ruby Tuesday, but you know in Shubville, it's Ruby Tuesday is where we would meet. And when we would meet there and have a bison burger, I knew I was in the presence of real beauty, giving me attention. I had a real purpose. My purpose in life became to go make more money to come back to Shovel to the Ruby Tuesday to buy another bison burger the next week. That's what my life was all about. And just to kind of take you back with me in time, my drives to Shelbyville were just some of the fondest memories I have in my life. I drove a 1992 Jeep Cherokee, and the windows were always down. The wind blowing in my hair, my favorite music playing as loud as I could. And I would get all of my excited, nervous energy out on my steering wheel, drumming to Red Hot Chili Pepper as loud as I could on my steering wheel. I did it so often and so loudly, banging on the steering wheel, that I literally shorted out the horn in the Jeep. And so what would happen, I would pull into Ruby Tuesday, and long before I ever touched the horn, she'd be waving in the parking lot like this, and I'd be pulling in like this, honk, the whole way to my parking spot. And I would talk to the Jeep, and I would say, hey, I get it, we're excited, but now we look really desperate. Let's settle down. <laughs> I love those memories, and of all places, shovel. Ruby Tuesday became a romantic place for me, and it's a special place for me. You have a special place in your life. A place can be special because a relationship buds there, and romance is born there, and that's special. A, a place can be special because you accomplished something there. It could be a building, and you started your business there. A place can be special because it might be sacred. You had an, a, a spiritual experience at a particular camp, church building, wherever that might be. The most special sacred place on the earth is obviously an opinion, and it's an arguable uh, point, but I would say it could very well be the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. For the Jews, this is the most sacred place. For Christians, it's still a pilgrimage. It's a beautiful thing to go in to visit this Temple Mount, and I'll tell you why. Deuteronomy 12, the text we're going to read, speaks about God designating a place to call his home, where his name will rest. He starts in Shiloh, but then eventually in Jerusalem, this temple is built. And literally, the temple of God, the dwelling of God happened there. He, 
the holy God would dwell and interact with the sinful people. That's like Shelbyville on steroids. Holy God with sinful people. So I, every Wednesday morning at 6 a.m., and a part of a men's group, a discipleship group. And my mentor in the group, David Sproles, which I actually got permission to say. I, said, I say his name because I talked to him before the service. Sproles told me a story about going to this western wall, which is the remains of the temple in Jerusalem. And David Young, sitting in front of me, gave him really good advice. Hey, you're going to want to write down your prayers before you get to the wall because you could forget what you came to pray for. It can be very overwhelming. I'm seeing heads nod uh, from people who've experienced this. So Sproles goes up to the wall. Sure enough, it happens. Just sheer overwhelm. And he puts his hand on this wall and can only say these words and hardly get them out. Holy, 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 holy. To be just on the other side of the wall where God himself called home and dwelt among his people. A holy God to interact with sinful man. But you didn't come here today to find out that some people somewhere in a time and place had a building where they would meet with God. You came today asking the question, can I? Can I meet with him? Would he have me over? Could I live in that house? And the answer is yes. But it's still a particular place. And there's only one. The answer is yes but at his particular place. And that place today is in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's the designated place today. And that's really the point of the sermon, that the appointed place of old is a signpost to the anointed person of our day. And that's King Jesus. You want to meet with God, that's where you can meet with God. And when you do, these are the blessings. And by the way, these are all of the blessings that the Israelites would have gone to the temple for in the the first place. These are your blessings in Christ Jesus. Number one, Forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness for your wrongdoing. When you meet God in the place he designates, you receive forgiveness for your wrongdoing. Number two, a real lasting brotherhood and sisterhood. Real lasting. It actually will never end. This is a family you're in, and we'll get to sing in Christ alone and soar again in eternity as many times as we want to together. Because this is your brotherhood and your sisterhood. And number three, and I love this one. I think we overlook it too much. You get celebration. You actually get joy. You, you get a feast in the presence of God. And three times in our passage, he's going to say, rejoice before me. I need to say this before I go on. Some of you are living like these things are not your blessings. Some of you are in Christ and you're living like this is not yours. Carrying guilt, acting as though you are unloved or don't have a place here in the church, and maybe even just coming with a heavy heart and not finding rejoicing in your walk. But I'm telling you, these are your blessings in Jesus. And the alternative is true. And I want you to hear me. Some of you are not in Christ, but you're claiming these things. And others who are listening are not in Christ, but they claim them. And it's a false hope. It's a false forgiveness. It's a false, because it won't last, brotherhood and sisterhood. And the celebration is a manufactured happiness But it isn't the happiness that comes in Christ. The one place we meet is in surrender to Jesus Christ. And what I want to do is we get into Deuteronomy chapter 12 and 13. I'm not going to read every verse in 12 and 13. But the verses we read, I'm going to be pointing you to Jesus. You know Jesus fulfills everything in this Old Testament. And what we're going to see is how he fulfills Deuteronomy 12 and 13. Because I want you to come to know Jesus, not just as your mind makes him up or your heart feels that you want to know him, but as he reveals the scriptures. Are you ready for that? Deuteronomy 12, let's start in verse 1. These 
are the decrees. So this is Moses being Moses. He said this many times. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. We're studying Deuteronomy to become masters at obedience. Moses is not going to let you off the hook, church. If you're looking for a Sunday where he says you don't have to obey, I'm sorry, you're not going to find it. This is about obedience. We're going to master that. As long as you live in this land, you're to be obedient to these commands, he says. And then he gives the command that we've heard before. Number two, verse two, destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. That's a command we've heard. Go in and destroy it. Don't even keep the gold off the idols. I mean destroy it. Call it done. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones and burn the Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. Let's pause at that. Do you know Jesus fulfills this? I'm telling you, the Old Testament points. It's signposts to him. Jesus fulfills it when he comes among us. He doesn't physically smash a, a, a sacred place. Jesus actually defeats the powers and the demons that are behind these sacred places. Jesus actually defeats the powers and the demons that are behind these idols. You can read in Colossians 2, 15, what happens on the cross. You might actually read uh, one, of this, one of these lines with me from Colossians chapter 2. It says this, that upon the cross, Jesus actually put publicly to shame the authorities. He put to shame, made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them on the cross. So that means in Christ... You're free also from the external pressures of demonic worship and practice and false gods. But listen, you're actually free in here. You're free from their darkness that binds you and that desires to bind you. In the name of Christ Jesus, there's freedom from that. So if you have idols in your life, or maybe you wonder, is it even possible to have idols in the modern day in the West? I want to point you back to lesson five, no other gods. David Young delivered it because I didn't. I can point you back to it and brag about it for a second. It's a great sermon about idolatry in our day. And how even though you might not know it, you could be orienting your life around an idol. It was preached seven weeks ago. Here's a hard question. Are you ready for one? Have you destroyed an idol yet? Seven weeks have gone by since the first challenge. There is, idol, there is idolatry. You're, you're proclaimed now. You're free in Christ. You can destroy these idols. Have you beat one? Or are you still flirting with the same idols? Because the command is to beat these things. To move past them. Let's go back to verse 4 in our text here. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. You're not worshiping the same God, and we're not going to do it in the same way. You are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose. He's going to say that three times. God will choose a place from among your tribes, and he will put his name there for his dwelling. How many of you, either on the inside or the outside of your house, have your family name somewhere in that house? Okay, on a doorpost, on a mailbox, your family name, this is where God is going to put his name, his personal address, and this is where he will dwell. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and your special gifts, what you have vowed to give in your free will offering and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in that special place, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have, everything you've put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. This designated place began in Shiloh, north of Jerusalem. It's in Ephraim. The tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was this designated place for a while, a couple hundred years. And God would call his people to meet with him there for the blessings we just, re we just recalled. Forgiveness of sins, brotherhood, sisterhood, an actual family to travel through life with. And then, yeah, 
celebration and joy. Eat in my presence, God said. Come over to my house and have a meal. Later, King David, when he looked out upon Israel and said, we all live in nice houses. Why does God still live in a tent? A, a temple in Jerusalem was built. And again, this western wall, this wailing wall, as it's referred to, is just on the other side of where God personally dwelt with man. Do you know that these are signposts? As sacred as that temple is, it's a signpost to a person. I'll say it like this if you're a note taker. This is for you. The anointed place the, anointed, or the appointed place ultimately served as a signpost to an anointed person. You know the name of this person. You want to say it with me? King Jesus. This is the anointed person it's all pointing to. And I want you to know Jesus is not ashamed of that. It didn't catch him off guard. Jesus claimed that role. Jesus claimed to be the place where a holy God and sinful man could meet. And he claimed to be the only place where that could happen. I'll read that to you so you don't take my word for it. Jesus' own words. Here we go. I am the way. I am the truth. Notice the article. It's not a. I am the truth and the life. No one, in case you didn't understand what that means, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's a bit uncomfortable to say we live in what has been referred to as a global village. Global meaning the world's population, village, meaning we all kind of now live close because of social media, because of internet presence. This is an absolute exclusive claim of Jesus Christ. It can be uncomfortable. How uncomfortable? How, how tightly is the church clinging to this? How deeply and certainly do you believe this statement to be true? The trend is actually not a positive trend in our country concerning this absolute exclusive claim of Jesus. You know, 65% of American Christians believe that there are multiple paths to God. This is according to 2008 Pew Research, which means I would expect this number to be higher, this percentage to be higher, especially since I believe it was 2011 when Rob Bell's book hit the market about, about erasing hell. So what I want you to see, love wins, what I want you to see is that in our evangelical circles, we've done a whole lot better retaining this truth and keeping this truth, but you see 10% in the research of evangel evan evangelicals believe that there are multiple paths to God. If you're at school and you get a 90 and you go home, that's not too bad. Probably your mom's not going to be upset with that. But when you determine that one in 10 people around you is either already crossed the line or flirting with this idea that Jesus is not the way, Jesus is not the truth, then it becomes real, doesn't it? One in 10 in our evangelical circles who are deciding that Jesus is not just the way. What does this mean? Well, I'm going to ask you, what do we lose when we lose this exclusive, absolute truth claim of Jesus. The first thing that we lose is trust in Jesus himself because it did come from his mouth. So you, we call Jesus our man. We need to trust what he says. If we lose trust in Jesus, what other dominoes will fall? What's the next thing that will change and how will the church be effective? The, the, the second thing we lose, and I, I don't think this is in the notes, but you should write this one, is missional urgency. Missional urgency. If Jesus is not the, the way to the Father, then our mission will suffer. So a great awakening is what North Boulevard desires to see, a worldwide great awakening. And when I get a microphone, I like to say those words again. A worldwide great awakening where everyone gets the chance to say yes to King Jesus. Great awakenings are built on foundational blocks, one of them being prayer and fasting. We become truly dependent on God. The other one being we trust Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. 
unquestioned. And I'm not asking you to not question for verification's sake. We're going to get to that. But I'm telling you, when we all believe as a people of God that he is the way, the truth, and the life, then missional urgency is born within us. And you start thinking, hey, I don't feel okay about my friend or my son or my neighbor who's outside of Christ because maybe it's not okay. Maybe I don't feel okay because it's not okay. Maybe being outside of Christ is a dangerous place to be. What if it's as dangerous as being outside the ark when the flood came? As dangerous as being outside of your house on Passover night in Egypt? God has provided a way. Jesus Christ. I have three babies born biologically, and each time they came out a little bit more yellow. It's just the way it went. Jaundice. I don't know if you ever had to fight the battle of jaundice, but on my first child that came out yellow, I was um, confused and a little scared. Let's just say that. So they placed the baby under what? Lights, blue lights, special lights. The second one, I was a little bit more comfortable, maybe even expected it. By the third one, I was bantering with the doctors. And this is what I said to a doctor. I kind of regret it, kind of don't. It's just my sense of humor. I said, hey, doc, I can take that baby home where I've got a can of elbow grease. I'll scrub that thing off of the baby. Now, the doctor wasn't in a laughing mood. The doctor said, no, David, you're going to take the lights home is what you're going to do. Because the lights are uniquely designed to meet the need. The lights are uniquely qualified to bring healing to the jaundice. My elbow grease would just frustrate the child. It's not an intolerant thing to say Jesus is uniquely qualified. It's not intolerant nor narrow-minded to say that he is the way. And I'll show you why. Because just as these lights treat jaundice, so Jesus is uniquely qualified to save you. And nobody else is. No one else. In Jesus, look at these unique qualifications. One, he lived alone. He alone lived a perfect human life, sinless. I know I'm using scripture to prove scripture. We'll come back to this. He is the only sacrifice for sin. He alone fulfilled the law and the prophets. He and he alone conquered death forever. And he is the only mediator between God and man. It's why the early church felt no hesitation to go to the nations proclaiming this message. And this is Peter himself from Acts. Salvation is found in no one else. Peter continues, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's the message of the church that believes. And missional urgency flows from that when we believe. If you are in that 10% or the 65%, however you want to look at it, I am calling you to something that probably seems offensive. But truth often leads to healing in the soul after that sharp blade of God cuts in there and begins doing his work. I know this is difficult, but this is true. So let's get back to the text. In verse 8, Moses is going to repeat himself. He's going to reemphasize this idea of one designated place and that you need to come rejoicing. He says, uh, you are not to do as we do here today. Everyone as he sees fit, since you have not reached the resting place in the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you, but you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then to the place for the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there, here's the word again, you are to rejoice before the Lord your God. This is a good thing. You, your sons, your daughters, your men servants and maidservants and the Levites from your towns who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them again. This is so exclusive. Only at the place the Lord will choose. Only there. Of your tribes and observe everything 
I have commanded you. So he goes on, but I want to make sure you get that three times he's going to mention rejoice. Rejoicing was and always will be a necessary component of proper worship. God calls you into his presence to eat, to celebrate, to rejoice, because in his presence you find life. You find brotherhood and sisterhood. You find forgiveness, so let's rejoice. That's why I say I love singing these songs with you. Not, and it's not just an emotional experience for me. This is actually true. It's biblical. We rejoice together. In Christ, we're saved. Rejoicing is good. Again, some of you don't, aren't claiming these blessings, but they're yours. I would claim them today. And then he goes on, and Moses repeats the same thing, same formula. God is going to choose a place. You're going to go there with your families, your friends, and then you're going to sacrifice what he tells you to sacrifice, and you're going to rejoice. But in the next section, and I'm not going to read all of it, but when he goes on in the next section, he brings up two new concepts. The first one is, I know this is highly inconvenient to have one place of worship. The pagans had multiple places. They were worshiping everywhere. And because it's highly inconvenient, and I love this about God, he says, you can have your backyard barbecues without any guilt. You can have your animal, you can kill it, you can eat it, you don't have to feel guilty about it, enjoy your barbecue time. But he says, when it comes time for the burnt offerings and the tithes, that all has to happen at this designated place. Then he goes on, he says, don't eat the blood, pour it out on the ground. The blood had a special designation. It was a cleansing agent for sin. It was a temporary cleansing agent and an insufficient one at that. Pointing to Jesus. That's what the Old Testament does. Pointing to Jesus who has an ultimate cleansing agent in his blood. Uniquely qualified to save you. Have I said that yet? Uniquely qualified to save you. Okay, let's go on. Verse 28. Be careful to obey. It says, says it again. Be careful to obey all these regulations. I am giving you so that it may go well with you and your children after you because you will be doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord your God. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess, but when you have driven them out and settled in their land and after they've been destroyed before you, look at this command. It's not just destroy the idolatry. Don't even ask about it. After they've been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. And you know why? Because it's not the same God, one, and two, their practices were detestable. Keep reading. Because in these practices, they were having prostitutes in the temples. And then the babies were born, and they would dedicate these children to gods by sacrificing these children unto these pagan gods. And none of that is for the people of God. Don't even question about it. Don't ask. Don't save the gold from it. Don't inquire. Just move on. Then chapter 13 begins. And before we get into chapter 13, I will warn you, this is some of the most striking language in Deuteronomy we've read so far. It's very striking. It's a statute for an appropriate time and place. It's not your statute. But the principle still is your principle. And we're going to talk about that. So here's chapter 13. Again, I told you it's raw. Don't say I didn't warn you. All right? Chapter 13. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, Wow, he's verified prophet. This takes place. And he, uh, if the sign of one takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods. Gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with your heart and with your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow. You see what's at stake. I don't care if it's a prophet who did something correctly. You cannot give up your place with the Lord. This is him you must follow, he says. 
And you must revere, keep his commands, and obey him, serve him, and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death. Hard to read that. But let's keep, let's keep reading. Because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. God gives you a warning here that some religious leaders have gifts, and some of them will use their gifts for evil. There. It's been said. Some have gifts, and some will use them for evil. Some will use them for selfish gain, and some will use them to manipulate you into doing what you ought not do and believing what you ought not believe. And if you're coming across weird stuff on Facebook from religious leaders, maybe even ones you used to love and admire and trust, you've already been warned by God of the Bible that, that they're going to do that kind of stuff. And it's not excusable, it's not right, but now you know. Don't kill them. We'll keep going. Verse 6, this gets really close to home, and I mean it. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love, that girl from Shelbville, if that girl entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your fathers have known, gods of the people around you, whether near nor far or far from the end of the land to the other, do not yield to him or listen to him. Show no pity. Do not spare him or shield him. You must certainly put him to death. Your hand must be the first in putting him to death and then the hands of all the people. Stone him to death because he tried to turn you away from the Lord your God. You see the, the capital punishment fits this crime that we might not put the capital punishment on the crime. He's taking you away from your life. It's better for him to die than for the whole, the whole country to be taken from their source of life, which is the Lord their God. Then he says, then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. That those evil things happened, and they happened repeatedly. Israel ended up in idolatry. That's why the exile came. The crime fits the punishment. Remember that Israel is putting to the sword all of the Canaanites who are pagans. God says that same punishment will fit you if you turn into idolatry as well. Not your statute, but here's a principle. You are to be guarded. You are, and you're to guard your heart, especially around those that you love the most, because there you're very vulnerable, especially around religious leaders. Check your Bible. Don't just believe everything that comes out of the mouth of a preacher. You are to be guarded. That's the truth. Okay, if you're a note taker, I'm on the back page, and what I'd like to do is now just work through what this means for you. We've read 12 and 13. We're pointing to Jesus. What's it like for you to meet with God in Christ Jesus? First, this is what I want you to know. You will always find God always when you surrender to King Jesus. You will always find God when you surrender to Jesus as King. And the first thing I want to emphasize is that I'm talking to you. You will. He will meet with you. He'll enjoy you and you can enjoy him when you surrender to King Jesus. That's our place of coming in contact with God today. Surrender is a hard word for Americans. Surrender is a difficult word. We prefer control over surrender. But if I told you that you're surrendering to a king who's not a tyrant, a king who died for you, a king who has good will for you, it makes things a little easier. But still you don't trust because we've surrendered to people before and it didn't work out all that well. It's a leap of faith to surrender to anybody. But I'm asking you to surrender to Jesus as king. And what it means to surrender is to completely reorient your life around his teaching. Completely. It's a one-time thing, but it's not just a one-time thing. So at some point, you draw a line in the sand and you surrender to Jesus. That looks like leaving your sin. That looks like making the ancient confession. 
It's a confession that's been used for generation after generation. It's three words. I'm going to say it, and if you believe it, I'm going to ask you to say it. Jesus is Lord. Only those who believe. I'm not trying to manipulate anybody, but I want you to say it if you believe, even online, wherever you are. Ready? Jesus is Lord. That's the ancient confession, and it is an act of verbal submission, especially if it comes from the heart. That's submission. And then the submission of baptism. Literally handing yourself fully over to another. Waving the white flag, you can come in, take this territory. I'm done. Baptism is often spoken about in our day as a symbol and as a symbol only. Truly, it's symbolic. Truly, it's symbolic. But it's not symbol only. In baptism, surrender happens. And it launches a life of surrender. So I don't, I'm not just baptized. I wasn't just baptized. I live baptized. We surrender to Jesus every day. We reorient our lives around him. I want you to see a promise that comes with that. It's not on your screen, but you will find it in John 14. That kind of rhymed. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. We will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. What he's saying is, you surrender, and then the dwelling of a holy God and a sinful man can be one. You can walk and live and love and enjoy God and surrender to King Jesus. That's where we meet God. Number two, develop unshakable confidence that Jesus is the way. Now, this is an intentional rhyme because of what happened on the third day. The right question to be asking, especially if you're walking towards the kingdom of God today, is, well, how do I know that Jesus is the way? So I understand that according to his claims, he is, and I understand that according to other biblical claims, he's uniquely qualified, but is there any verification of these things? And the answer is yes. The early church did not go around preaching this. You ought to believe in Jesus. So conjure it up, believe. That wasn't the message of the early church. The early church said, you ought to believe in Jesus who appeared to us in resurrected form after being slayed on a cross. And we are witnesses of these things. And we've written eyewitness accounts. I'm asking you to build a confidence on the resurrection of Jesus. So we're two weeks out from Easter. Easter is so fun. We're literally going to drop eggs from helicopters around here. That's wild. I'm asking you to make this. So as you approach Easter, you have decisions to make. You got to decide what Easter outfit you're going to wear. I literally didn't preach in a certain shirt I liked because I thought I'm wearing that one on Easter. You got to decide Easter outfit. You need to decide what Easter uh, basket, if your kids are going to have Easter baskets. You need to decide if you're going to meet with your family. If you do, is it mass on, mass off? How are you going to sit? How are you going to make this happen? You got a lot to decide which service you're going to go to. The sunrise service starts at 7 a.m. That's a cool service. You might go to that. But you know the one decision you really need to make? And this is the year to make it? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did he? Do you believe it? Did it happen? Search out the truths. You have eyewitness accounts who are recorded in your collection of books. This is not a book. This is a collection. And some of these are eyewitness accounts of people who walked with Jesus. Those eyewitness accounts went on to transform an empire, the Roman Empire, the strongest of its day. That was actually in opposition to these guys. And if they could have only produced a body, they would have squelched the movement. But they couldn't produce a body. And not only that, but these eyewitnesses went on to die for the record that they went on uh, history, recording. We die for these things because the eyewitnesses believe them. Not only that, Jesus today still appears to people in dreams and in visions. People far from this building in dreams and in visions still heals the sick, still resurrects the dead. You have to reckon with all of this. You have to think about this. 
And this is where you build faith, is in the resurrection of Jesus as the verification of his unique qualities that save you. Jesus is uniquely qualified and he's uniquely verified. And that brings us to number three. Love the church, but put your faith in Christ. Love the church, but put your faith in Christ. You're given lots of commandments on how to relate to the church. They're they're the one another commands. We did a whole series on them. And they're good. Love and pray, support. There's a one another command we did. Sing to one another in songs. But none of those one another commands are about putting your faith in the church. And there is a difference. The church will do things wrong. The church will upset you at times. Some of you are here and you don't even know how you made it in the building because the church has burned you before. You've been burned. Some of you are here and you don't know how you made it because there was a preacher just went off the rails and absolutely tanked with the gospel. The church does things wrong. The rebukes in Revelation for the church are real rebukes. The church is not perfect. It hurts at times too. But the church is your journey partner and it's a test of you building loving relationships. And that's what you're supposed to do in the church. But there's an ancient Indian wedding practice that I think is just beautiful for, image, for this imagery. The bridesmaids would accompany the bride after the ceremony up to the, the threshold where the groom is in his house. The bridesmaids come with the bride. They celebrate, they sing, they dance, and they go all the way up to the threshold. Now they don't cross. And together, symbolically, they they usher her across the threshold to the groom. And then they step back, and they have fully entrusted this bride with that man and him with her. And they leave. It's a beautiful image. It's not a perfect analogy. But the the church celebrates your journey towards Jesus. I'm pushing you towards him. He's right and good and perfect. He's verified. He's uniquely qualified. And then we get here and, and it's just, we do our job to get you to Jesus. We celebrate and we, we stay here with Jesus together. But the job is to point you to him. Not to me. Not at all to me. Number four. Be on your guard. Many will influence you to abandon the way. Be on your guard. So when I said, the statute is not yours. Don't stone anybody. The principle is still yours. And remember what he said. They tried to pull you away from me. The principle is this. Especially around religious leaders and people you love. Especially around religious leaders and people you love. You need to be guarded. Not guarded that you wouldn't love them or enjoy them. But what I mean is you need to be questioning the truth. You need to be holding to the truth. This is really difficult when you're in the car with a son. And you're a Christian. And you're a worshiper. But the son drops some bomb on you about how he no longer believes. Or the son drops a bomb on you about how he's going to adopt a completely different lifestyle. Or he's going to think about it like this. And because your heart goes with the ones that you love, oftentimes so does the truth. And we shift and we, we question and we lose our footing. And what the scriptures are clear on is that you are to remain guarded. You are to protect yourself. Because even insiders, especially among them, I know, Paul says, that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will rise and distort the truth in order to draw you away as disciples. So we've all seen Facebook posts, lots of posts and articles about religious leaders that we trusted, about men, women, who shook the foundation of our faith when they did what they did or said what they said. 
But this harkens back to where your foundations of the faith are supposed to be. In Christ Jesus, in him crucified and in him resurrected. Others will make mistakes. It's not an excuse for them. It's not right. It's not good. And there will be judgment, punishment for it. But you are to be grounded in Christ, in him resurrected. So do you, do, what do you do with a family member who you're guarding against? That's always awkward, really difficult. You have a particular family member you have to remain guarded against. And now you have to set boundaries in the relationship because they're walking in a completely different way. Don't stone them. Point five, this is what we do. Number five, throw no stones. Rather, launch an all-out rescue mission to resurrect the dead. That's what we do. Throw no stones. And this is why I say that when Jesus enters the scene, he gives you a whole new perspective, not just the physical one, but you begin to see spiritual realities. And what you know is that somebody who's left Christ, somebody who is living in sin and they're proud of that, are already dead. You don't need to stone them. Ephesians 2 says, you too were once like that. You too were once dead. Until a power, unlike any power, entered your life. It's the power and the grace of Jesus that resurrected you from the dead. So I want you to think about the people around you. I mentioned a 6 a.m. Wednesday morning discipleship group. I know that those guys, and I know that this church, I know that my small groups are my team to going on mission to resurrect the dead. To take the gospel, to pray and to fast over these people. Don't carry the burden of that alone. If you're in a group and you have a family member who is just absolutely keeping you up at night and you hurt because of where they are in the faith or out of the faith and, you're, and you yourself are burdened with that, when they say, hey, how can we pray for you? Don't say pass. Don't say pass. Gather your team. Work together. Shoulder these burdens together and let's launch missions to resurrect the dead because the power is available to us in the gospel and the grace of Jesus to resurrect the dead. Uh, so when I drive to Shelbyville, Shelbyville, Today I see the Ruby Tuesday, but it's, it's shut down. They're selling it. Since 2017, it's been closed. They're trying to sell it. And I am a little bummed about it because I'm just now celebrating 10 years of marriage, and it would be really sweet to go and get one more bison burger at Shovel Ruby Tuesday and to commemorate, to take the kids and to experience that. But listen, it served its purpose because that girl is now my wife, and she's with me. She's in my house. She's beside me. The temple served its purpose, pointing ultimately to an anointed person who will make his dwelling with you. Surrender your life to him. Build real confidence on his resurrection. Guard yourself against anyone who would pull you away from him. Love the church, but don't put your faith in the church. And lastly, let's launch missions that point people to Jesus because he'll raise them from the dead. And that's what we do in this day and in this age. So I hope in some way you've been inspired by the person and the work of King Jesus. If so, in this moment where you are, begin surrendering that heart and then call on somebody else. Confess sin, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized and surrender to Jesus. Take your step. Let's stand up, let's sing, and let's continue to celebrate King Jesus this morning.